0: Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here. It's good to be with you all here this morning. And actually, that's a lie, because I'm not with you here this morning physically. I'm with you in spirit for sure. But this is a pre-recorded message. Um, it's pre-recorded because I'm going to be doing something tomorrow, which is your now. I'm doing something right now uh, with the Jesus Collective. Uh, there is the Jesus Collective is is we're finding out our tribe. Uh, it's a hub that is servicing this this movement that God's raising up all around the world that we're a part of. A Jesus-looking people discovering a Jesus-looking God uh, who's cha- raising himself to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. And, uh, um, and so the, uh, I'll be part of a panel discussion tomorrow, and we'll be viewing that in a couple of weeks. It'll be part of a series. We're going to take a break from the Sermon on the Mount and do a three-part series that kind of introduces the whole church to the Jesus Collective. And we have representatives from Woodland Hills each week, but there's also folks from other churches each week that'll be part of this. And I'm just so excited about this. It's um, it's just a it's a, it's a happening thing, and, and you're going to be, want to be part of that, because uh, we're part of this. This is we're coming into our tribe here, and it's something that we've actually been looking for for quite a while, and so uh, uh, be, please be part of that in a couple of weeks. But that's why I'm talking here tonight, uh, and you're seeing a pre-recorded message. Um, it, it does create a little bit of funkiness, and nervousness on the part of Mary Van Sickle. Because usually Saturday nights, you know, this is where they, I, I give a run-through and then they critique it and tell you, tell you what you can shave off to keep it within the time constraints that are now more important, that we're meeting all together at once, and so all those sort of things. But now, you know, whatever I do tonight, uh, however wacko uh, thing I might say or however long I might go, they're stuck with it. So I hold so much power right now. I'll be in so much trouble if I do that. So I I, I have to try to keep this within the time frame, which is what, again, 50 minutes? Is that right, Mary? (laughs) It's supposed to be like 35 or something that I never quite attained. But, uh, um, anyways, uh, uh, so I'll be trying to. And the thing is, is I got a lot of content. And and this is one of those teaching messages. So get your thinking cap on because it's going to be an educational kind of thing. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Uh, which is on divorce and remarriage. But I want to assure you that that what I'll be sharing here, uh, there's stuff that applies to everybody. And so don't think that it's not going to apply to you because you've never been divorced or or, or remarried. It does apply to you. So to start, uh, just by way of a little review, we've seen that Jesus here is, he's been uh, kind of bringing out his radical kingdom ethic by contrasting it with traditional teachings and in several cases with teachings from the Old Testament. And, uh, and so we've seen going into this passage that we're looking at here this morning that Jesus first says, you know, you, you've heard it said not you shall not murder. And that's fine. Don't murder. <clears throat> murder is contrary to the character and the will of God. And so murder is an indication that you're going on the road to destruction, the road to Gehenna. Which sometimes translated the road to, to hell. Uh, but Jesus says that if you are harboring anger towards your brother or sister or looking down on your brother or sister— uh, judging your brother or sister, you're already on that road to destruction. So he equates the inner world and the outer world as, 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 as the same. Uh, don't just be concerned with what you do with your body. Be concerned with what you do with your mind. Be concerned with what you do with your heart. Because what you do with your mind and what you do with your heart is something that you are doing very, every bit as much as what you're doing physically. And the, the fact that the public can't see what you're doing on the inside doesn't change the reality that God knows what you're doing on the inside and God considers the two to be on the, same, on the same level. Same thing with adultery. If we were to say don't commit adultery, don't. That's, that's a good thing to avoid. But uh, Jesus says that if you're lusting after a person in your heart, you're already committing adultery. You're, you're already engaging in sex outside of the marriage covenant with them. And, and so Jesus here puts the, our inner world on the same level as our outer world. It's just as important. It's a radical kingdom ethic. And see, if we take this seriously, that our imagined behavior is as important as our physical behavior, and it's the same with God, that's why to lust us after a person is committing adultery with them, and is adultery. And we take that seriously, you realize that we are, we, 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 we commit adultery with our first lustful thought, we've committed murder with our first hateful thought. And if we take that teaching seriously, it will be impossible for us to ever feel morally superior to anybody next time you find yourself gossiping in your brain about somebody in a negative way, looking down on those people, talking in that kind of language, uh, just remind yourself that you're an adulterer and a murderer hundreds if not thousands of times over. And that will cure you of this. Uh, this is what Jesus is getting at when he says if you th- think you see a dust particle in someone else's eye, consider it to be, a, or if you think you see a fault in somebody, uh, consider that to be a mere dust particle in their eye compared to the, the plank of wood that you have coming out of your own eye. You know, minimize their, their stuff and maximize your own. That's why the Apostle Paul, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, I quote this passage a lot because it's so good. He says, here's a saying that's sure and worthy of full acceptance. Namely, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's the saying. And so each of us are to be uh, regarding ourselves as the foremost of sinners. Not in a beat-up-yourself kind of way, but just to keep us humble. And see, this is where God meets us. Not at the top of some claim we make about ourselves, but he meets meets us at the bottom in our brokenness, in our hopelessness, in our helplessness. And he loves us in our hopelessness and our helplessness, and that's what gives us hope. Because he meets us at the bottom, loves us at the bottom, in order to bring us to where he knows we can be. And this is where we meet. We meet each other and we embrace each other at the bottom. Not in, in our mutual brokenness, and in our mutual belovedness. Not in some claim we make for ourselves, claim of superiority, but rather in a humble confession that we're the worst of sinners and we need Jesus Christ to save us. So having said that, laid out his radical teaching, now Jesus turns his attention to divorce and remarriage. Uh, Last week I just talked about the myth of romantic love, and it set it up and how that's an obstacle to the covenantal understanding of marriage. And so this week I'm just going to unpack this verse, Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Here's how it goes. Jesus said, it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that anyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of unchastity causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There you go. And all the divorced and remarried people in attendance, in audience, listening, got kind of nervous. But don't, you don't need to be nervous. Just listen to this. Okay, I will say at the beginning that, that th- this passage is controversial. This passage has a number of different interpretations. And, and there's something to be said for all of them. Uh, but I don't have time to give you all the possible interpretations. I only have time to give you the right one. Okay? Okay? There you go. Uh, no, I'll, I'll lay out some variations here, but, but I really do have to just kind of cut to the chase here. I'm going to start by talking about what is, has been the traditional, or at least the most common traditional interpretation of this passage, and why I think it's wrong. Because I suspect some of you have, have, have been taught this. Um, in this traditional teaching, the, the, the understanding is that the reason why Jesus says, if you divorce this woman, you cause her to commit adultery, and whoever marries her commits adultery, is that they believe that um, that the couple are still married in God's eyes. So they, you may get divorced, but God doesn't acknowledge the divorce. In God's eyes, you're still married because the Bible says what well, God's joined together, no one should ever put asunder. And, and you're only relieved from that marriage, you're only, that's only broken when one of the partners commits adultery or some kind of inappropriate sex. Then you're, you're no longer bound to that. But as long as there hasn't been infidelity that's been, caught, been, been, been brought into the marriage, well, then there, there's, there's, there, there's no grounds for, for divorce. And, and therefore, God sees you as a married couple. You're still married in God's eyes. Now, if you think about that, that can create some awkward situations. Um, like, for example, is it really the case that you, do you want to go to all remarried people and say, hey, you guys are living in adultery? And presumably, it, it has a countation of you shouldn't be doing this. Uh, and, and in fact, if, if you're going to be consistent, I guess you would say, if, if you're still married in God's eyes to your first, your original partner, well then you ought to divorce the second husband or third husband or third wife or whatever and go back to the first one. Because um, they're, they're still married in God's eyes. And that's kind of awkward. So very few churches that have taught us have been consistent about it. And what if there's kids involved? you Are just going to blow up the family to go back to the original because they're still married in God's eyes? And what the first husband is abusive or, or just a terrible all-around person. I don't know. It doesn't sound like a loving thing to do, to barge in there and go back to the first and destroy everything that happened after that. It also creates some bizarre dilemmas. I honestly have talked to people who were divorced, and they were, but they're, they're, they don't think like they can get remarried until their, their ex-partner, their ex-spouse, has sex with somebody. And so they're hoping, they're all both waiting, hoping the other one falls first. Because in this game, and that's what it feels like a legal game, is whoever falls first loses. You're the adulterer. Now the other one is, is off the hook. But think about this. Think about this. Here you can have two people who maybe aren't, there's no reality to their marriage at all. They have no commitment. They maybe despise each other, hate each other, n- never plan on working on it, are all together moving in the opposite direction, and maybe they've been cruel to each other and, and not been faithful with, with, with being vigilant on their hearts or whatever. However they got this way, they're in a state of being that there's, there's, there's no reality to the marriage. But in God's eyes, they're still married? Until one of them steps over the line and has sex. Okay, now you're free. I, whenever you find yourself in, in coming to a conclusion where real, where legality is more important than reality, uh, that's one indication that you're not talking about the right God. Because the God that's revealed in Jesus is concerned about reality first and foremost. Legality is this there to support reality. In fact, this is the title of this message today. It's reality something like reality over legality or something like that. Uh, it was clever. I just can't remember what it was. So really it was clever, but not very memorable. Um, so so the, the, this interpretation, uh, it, uh, the very fact that it's, it, it makes God, it looks like a technicality God. There's something off there. Something's wrong with this picture. It also doesn't fit the pattern of the antitheses at all, because up to this point, these antiphities, these contrasts, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. They've been about, you've heard it said about behavior, but I'm gonna talk about what's equally important, that's your inner reality. You've been talking about behavior, things you can measure with the law. Here's a rule. You've heard about this rule, but I'm telling you, you gotta maintain this reality. Because even if you keep the rule, you don't have the reality, the reality of loving your brother and sister and not hating your brother and sister and not lusting after your brother and sister, well, then the fact that you don't do it with your behavior it doesn't matter at all. That's irrelevant. So reality always takes place over legality. So there's something off with this interpretation. because And this interpretation, I think, it actually says the opposite. That God doesn't care about the reality of what's going on between the two. What really matters is you're only out if if there's this technicality. Ah, you had sex first. Even though maybe the other person was thinking about it ten times as much. And even though Jesus says that what you're thinking about is as important as what you're actually doing with your bodily behavior. Something's off here. Now, to, to... really understand what's going on in this passage, um, we need to go back to the, the, this original certificate of divorce, this thing that uh, Moses uh, provided for them. So here's what it says in Deuteronomy 24. This is the background of this passage. Moses says, Suppose a man enters into a marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Then she leaves his house and goes off and becomes another man's wife. And then suppose the second man dislikes her, the second husband. He writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or maybe the second man who who married her died. Her first husband, who sent her away, this is the point now, is not permitted to take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that would be abhorrent to the Lord, and you shall not bring guilt on the land that the Lord your God has given you as a possession." So here's the thing. In God's ideal, as we've shared a number of times here, Genesis 2, God's ideal, uh, sex was to be reserved for one person who, with whom you are committed your entire life. In God's ideal, sex was the way of saying, I do. It's your bodily way of saying, I do, to the marriage covenant. You're giving yourself to the person that you just said you'll commit your whole self to, and now you're expressing it physically. That is God. In fact, in God's ideal, as we see here in Jesus' teaching, the, the ideal is that we'd only think about one sexual partner for our whole life the one that we're committed to for our whole life. That's God's ideal. Because when, when, when two people come together, we find in Genesis 2 that it says that God creates a one flesh relationship. When you say, I do, by giving your bodies to one another, there's a new reality that's created there. It's more than just the together physicality of the two. God's creating this one flesh reality. And, 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 and it says in Genesis that what God, or Jesus says, what God is joined together, no one should ever put asunder. There's, there's one flesh here. But God is a realist. Yeah, he's got his ideals, but he also deals with the real world. In the real world, divorce happens. And God saw that divorce was happening. And, and, and so rather than be a guy who says, oh, I'm not going to deal with this thing because it's a nine-ideal situation that broke from my ideal, God rather says, uh, what's the loving way to go forward? Uh, how do we bring some things to this that maybe offer some protection for women? The certificate, this, this certificate of, of, marriage, of divorce was really for the sake of the women in two ways. First, by giving her the certificate, uh, she says something to walk around with and prove that she's no longer bound to her first husband, which means she's available to be remarried. And that's a very important thing for a woman to have in the ancient world because you didn't have a lot of options if you weren't married. Um, Even though that remarriage would involve a break from God's ideal. And the way that comes out here in in, in Deuteronomy 24 is that it says she's been defiled. There's a fall from God's ideal of having one sexual partner for your life. Even though remarriage involves that, it's it's, it's a loving thing to do because the alternatives, well, the alternatives are begging at best, being a beggar the rest of your life, or slavery or prostitution. And here, the, the, the woman's defiled, and this is what Jesus calls adultery, not because she's still married to her first husband in God's eyes, she's not committing adultery, it, but just because she's falling short of the ideal of having one sexual partner for your life. So, so uh, um, the second reason is that, that it, it prevents the divorces from being arbitrary. In the ancient world, the men held all the cards. They could just say, hey, hit the highway anytime they wanted. Get out the door. You're gone. And then they could change their mind if they wanted to. Like, okay, you can come back now. And the women have, there's no safety net for these women here. Uh, they're just out on the street. And so, so God comes into the situation as basically saying, you know, how, how, how can I keep a bad situation from being worse? And so he's going to slow down the whole, the whole process. You can't just willy-nilly write a, write a bill of divorce. So he puts in the stipulation. If you divorce this lady and she gets remarried, you can never have her again. The husband may die or may just kick her out, and she'll be available to be remarried to anybody else, but she cannot marry you. And the reason is because he's saying, buddy, think about this. You think about this. There's a a gravitas to this. Don't you just go throwing women on the street willy-nilly. Now, I think that offers a little bit of protection. I'm sure God would have loved to offer more, but... Since God's not going to be coercive and lobotomize people to think true thoughts, he has to work by means of influence. And so this is as far as he could influence them. Uh, It it improves upon what you find throughout the ancient Near East, but it's still far from ideal, but it's something. You can't go back and marry that first husband. Which I, to my way of thinking, my little puny brain little way of thinking, it seems to me that that is enough to itself disprove this idea that you're still married in God's eyes. Because if they're still married in God's eyes, you would think that, the, God would want the woman to go back to the first husband because on that traditional teaching, she still married that first husband. And yet that first husband is the only one that said, God says, I forbid you to marry her. I, I think what it shows is that, 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 that uh, uh, God honors the dissolving of covenants just like he honors the making of covenants. Uh, that, that, that new covenant, that one flesh relationship, it creates this living thing called one flesh, but it can be killed. And when people dissolve it, God doesn't pretend like they didn't dissolve it. No. Instead, what God always does is he asks the question, what's the loving way to go forward? Uh, So God puts us in place for the sake of the woman to slow down the process. Uh, And it shows you that that God God honors the decisions that people make for better or for worse. You want to dissolve this covenant, Well, then the covenant can be dissolved. See, I just love what this says about, uh, about God. That When we break God's ideal, which we began to do with our first lustful thought and our first hateful thought, But when we break God's ideal, God doesn't get all angry and wash his hands and say, I don't want anything to do with you, you disgusting little varmint. He doesn't act like that. He doesn't throw a holiness temper tantrum. When we fall from God's ideal, God God is love. And the question he asks is, what's the loving way to go forward? What's given now the situation, what's the best we can do, given that you're falling from God's ideal? And, And sometimes the loving way forward, as we're seeing with this remarriage, the loving way forward may itself... You further break from God's ideal. Once you get off track from the ideals, it's often your options are all non-ideal. But that doesn't keep God from dealing with them. No, God says, let's get in here and, and go in the direction of the one that is the most loving, uh, the most holistic way to go. This is what's called an accommodation. God accommodates us. We talk a lot about that here. Since God is not a coercive God, uh, God influences us as much as possible in the direction he wants us to go, but there comes a point where God has to accept us as we are if he wants to continue to influence in the direction we should go. He accommodates our, our, our non-ideal states, our fallen states, and that's what's the loving way to go forward. Now, I talk a lot about that in the book Cross Vision and in the book uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, um, this whole idea of God accommodating and, and how, how that shows up in Scripture. I've had this objection, however, uh, from some conservative folks. Uh, they've argued like this, that I have a false conception of God because I don't understand God's holiness. Uh, God's God is altogether holy. God is perfectly holy. I've been told several times, and and because God's perfectly holy, God doesn't compromise with sin, because compromising with sin is is itself sin. And all holy God can't, all holy God can't tolerate sin. Can't look at sin. Is disgusted by sin, so can't compromise with sin. So I must have the wrong God. Uh, I I have three three responses to that objection. Number one, um, you're wrong. <laughs> Uh, read the Bible. God all over the place accommodates. What do you mean God doesn't accommodate? It's one of the main things he does throughout the whole Bible. Polygamy and and, and, and concubine and kingship and all the rest. He's constantly meeting people where they're at in their fallen state and even blessing people where they're at in their fallen state because it's the best that they can do right there. So and Jesus it was the holiest man in history and he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. So. Whatever you—maybe sin sin discuss God, but God loves sinners, and he hangs out with them and is not afraid to call them their friend. This idea that he's, oh, I can't be around you guys because you're too sinful. That's just not a a, a biblical conception. Secondly, if God didn't accommodate—if God stuck to all of his ideals, Mr. Objecture on this one, what this person doesn't realize is that if if God were to stick to uncompromisingly to God's highest ideals— this objector would be in serious trouble right after he, the first time he ever lusted after somebody or hated somebody. What this objector doesn't realize is that, that, that he or she is as much in need of God's grace and God's mercy to meet them where they are as the divorced or married person or any other person you want to look at. Every other imperfect person in the world, which is every person in the world, uh, is, is, is under this loving accommodation. God at some point meets us, loves us, embraces us in non-ideal circumstances and the third thing is, is, is that this is the kind of error that happens when we keep when we when we don't keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ crucified as we're thinking about God. And so here the question is, is, is what is God's holiness? And 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 uh, if we're not careful, we might just start to think on our own, like, hmm, I think I know what God's holiness is. Uh, you know, holiness means set apart. And so so it must mean God is set apart from sin. God, God stays as far away from sin as possible. Yes, he's holy you know, and and he can't touch it. Our reasoning might come to that. That's how the Pharisees thought, and that's the kind of holiness that the Pharisees modeled, and that's why sinners wanted nothing to do with the Pharisees. They want to stay away from the Pharisees. That's a a human, legalistic, moralistic conception of holiness. So let's try again, but this time let's keep our eyes on, on, on the crucified Christ, which is the full and definitive revelation of God. What is God's holiness as we look at the cross? Well, here's God's holiness. God is altogether holy, perfectly holy, But he displays his holiness by diving into our sin. In fact, he displays his holiness by becoming our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who do no sin became sin for us. So this sets God apart. It sets God apart from every other God that human beings have ever imagined. A God who's so holy, he's holy because he loves sinners to the point of giving himself on behalf of sinners, even entering into their non-ideal states, their sin, bearing it all upon himself. That's true holiness right there, the kind of holiness that gravitates towards sinners, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, not that shies away from them or drives them away. It's an altogether different, altogether different kind of, of, of holiness. Okay, so uh, uh, that lays then the background of the passage. Now, to, to get into the meat of this passage, which we're going to do right now, it, it helps to look at another place where Jesus gave this teaching, but gave it in a more extended form. And I'm talking about Matthew 19. Um, and so here's the background to Matthew 19. The debate of the day was, what did Moses mean when he said, if, if the husband finds something uh, uh, displeasing in her because there's something objectionable in her? Uh, what does that mean, objectionable and displeasing? And, and there's two main schools of thought. You had the household of Shammai, which said that uh, the displeasing thing had to be something sexual in nature. And then you had the house of Hillel that said, no, it could be anything. You know, if, if she displeases you because she didn't bring your, your, your breakfast on time, she's out the door. I mean, just, anything goes. So that, that, that's the, uh, the, the dilemma. Now, they try to pull Jesus into this debate. And, and here's how Jesus responds. It says, starting with verse 3, Some Pharisees came to him to test him, they asked. Uh, to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Weigh in. And so he does. He answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, they are one. And uh, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? The way they put it is like as though Moses commanded them to divorce. And he said to them, it was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity and marries another, commits adultery. All right, all right. So they're trying to trap Jesus. They're luring him to this topic like they always do. What option do you choose? Option A or option B? And Jesus always finds a way to either nullify the question or expose the, the wrongheadedness of the question or to turn the question back on to people. Uh, we saw that as with his, the, the command not to murder and the command not to commit adultery. Uh, the way Jesus resolves those debates, you, you think you're going to feel righteous because you haven't murdered anybody? You think you're going to feel righteous because you, you, you haven't committed adultery? Well, he holds up God's ideal, and then he says, well, now how righteous do you feel? If you look at someone to lust with them, you've already committed adultery, and if you're harboring anger, you've already committed murder. So he holds up this ideal to expose the carnality, the wrongfulness, the sinfulness of all, all the parties. And that's, I think, what Jesus is doing here. He says, go back to Genesis 2. And, 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 and he says there's a new reality created when, when, when the two come together. And what God's joined together should never be put asunder. Should never, and so he's saying that this thing that God creates should never, ever be destroyed. It's meant to last a lifetime. It's meant to be forever, at least in terms of this world. And so all divorce in remarriage involves a break from God's ideal. It was given because of the hardness of your hearts. If our hearts hadn't been so hard, we'd never have to come up with a certificate of divorce and all that kind of thing. But divorce happens. And when it happens, God says, okay, I'll get involved on behalf of the women to do all I can do without coercing people. But that's an accommodation. That's a permission. That's not the kind of thing you can ever brag about. Can't, you, the very fact that you're asking the question, what are the grounds that, on which we can divorce, shows... That you've already, you've already lost the game. There's something wrong with a marriage where you're looking for the grounds on which you can divorce your wife. But that brings me to this exception clause. What, what does this mean? Except for the cause, of, except for unchastity. Whoever divorces, except for unchastity causes her to commit a divorce, causes her to commit adultery, sorry. Because um, that looks, let's say, that looks like he's siding with the Hillel school. Okay, so if, if she is unfaithful sexually, well, then you can divorce her. It looks like Jesus is siding with one of the parties. And that gives people a loophole. Okay, so the loophole is he has to commit pornea. All right, so now you have people praying, oh, Lord, please let them com- commit pornea, because I really want to marry this other person. And I can't until they have sex. And now we're back in that legal game. There's some things that, that are kind of interesting here. On the other hand, Matthew uses this word pornea. And pornea could mean one of two things. It could mean incest. It was the word they used for incest. And, and uh, Scott McKnight, who wrote one of the best commentaries on the uh, Sermon on the Mount that is out there, uh, and I love the brother. I think I disagree with him on this point. But Scott McKnight argues that this is what, this, he thinks this is what Matthew's getting at. That he is he's saying, uh, he, he's, he's uh, kind of starting with the, the, the Shammai school, saying that you can only divorce for, for, for uh, reasons of porneia, but he thinks it's specifically incest, because incest was the most disgusting thing that a Jewish person could think of. So Jesus sort of tightening the belt on the Hillel school saying, okay, if she really is, does the most outrageously gross thing, well then you can. But otherwise, there's no justified grounds for divorce. That's one way of looking at it. Or porneo could just mean generally more sexual immorality. Now it is interesting that, uh, uh, that, that, that that's not the word for adultery. "Mokeomai" is the word for adultery. And you can make the case that that's the word you would expect Matthew to have used if he was talking about divorcing your full wife. Because any, any, any sexual activity outside of marriage on the part of the wife would have been considered adultery. And so, all the things being equal, they could be used interchangeably, but all the things being equal, one could argue that, 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 that you would have thought he would have used mochaomai. But even more significant is this. Um, that this exception clause is only found in Matthew. And you've got to ask why. Matthew, or Mark, and Luke all have, just point blank, whoever, whoever divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. And no, Jesus assumes that the lady's going to get remarried, causes her to commit adultery, and he blames it on the person. But it does involve this break from, 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 God's, I, 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 from God's ideal. Um, and, and, and so why did Matthew add that? The most, the best explanation I found in this, and, and and on top of this, everyone agrees that, or almost everybody agrees that Mark was written earlier, and that Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, had Mark in front of him, or at least there's a lot of the oral traditions about Mark in front of him, and and, and, and he wrote his own gospel around that. So now it becomes really interesting to ask the question, why did, Jesus, why did Matthew take the statement that in its original did not have an exception clause, and he added one? And the best explanation that I've heard is that is this. He was writing, Matthew is the most Jewish gospel. He's writing for a Jewish audience. And in ancient Judaism, you had a two-fold stage in a wedding. You had the betrothal period where you were legally married, more than our engagement period. You were legally married. You had to take a legal action to get out of it. But you didn't consummate the marriage. You didn't yet say, I do with your bodies. That happened usually a year or two later when they had a wedding. And now, now they said, I do with their bodies. They consummate the marriage. And that's the full marriage. It was assumed by everybody that until that couple comes together and creates a one-flesh relationship, that any sexual propriety is, is, is grounds for getting out of that marriage. And that is what a lot of, some scholars argue that Jesus is pointing to. He takes a saying that was unequivocal, that what, what God's joined together should never be put asunder, full stop. And then he says to his Jewish children, "Well, of course, you know, that there is that time in, in, in marriage, that first phase of marriage where you can get out if she's committed porneia, as we all know. But he adds that the Gentiles didn't need that because they didn't have that tradition, but the Jews do because they do have that, 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 that tradition. And so in, in, this, in this interpretation, now hear me on this. Adultery is not justified grounds for divorce. I know that might sound shocking to a lot of folks. But why would adultery be grounds for divorce? Because here's the thing. Usually when adultery happens, it doesn't happen to a couple that is just really thriving together. There's usually things going on in the marriage that lead to that. That more often than that, that's the tip of the iceberg. Now, there's exceptions to everything, but but, but that's the tip of the iceberg, and, and so you have all this other stuff that could be going on in the marriage that leads to this. It's usually a symptom more than it is the, the actual cause of the problem in the marriage. And so, why make that like okay? Now you, that, that's the deal breaker. is forgivable if the person's willing to repent and willing to do the work that it takes to regain trust. Uh, I, I've known marriages that have gone through affairs and they come out better because of it. I've noticed several that have said it was the best thing that happened to them because it woke them up. So why, why would that be a technicality? And in fact, if you're looking at the pattern of Jesus' antitheses, I think the point is this. Why are you looking for grounds in the first place? What Grounds for divorce? Oh, here's now, now you're justified. Well, the fact that you're looking for grounds shows you that something's already wrong. You're not looking at the reality of the marriage, you're looking at the legality of the marriage. Um, and and uh, yeah, there's this if Jesus tells us anything about the real God, it's, it's, and he does, it's that he's a God who prefers reality over legality. And you see, here's the thing. The marriage covenant, it was supposed to, that one flesh reality. Uh, it, it's, it's all about that one flesh reality. And, and uh, that one flesh reality, it's, it's about, in God's, in God's original ideal, this, the goal of this is to have a unique way of reflecting the, the image of the triune God. We reflect the image of the triune God in a lot of different ways, but here's a beautiful way of doing it, by the way the husband and wife come together. And and the promises of the covenant are meant to reflect the reality of that marriage and to support the reality of that marriage, to keep the couple moving in that direction, because we all do it imperfectly. But uh, the reality is about learning how to love the other person, learning how to put the interests of the other person ahead of your own, learning how to think like a we instead of just a me, learning how to enjoy one another. And look past things that irritate you, learning how to enjoy each other's bodies and enjoy each other's minds and company, you learn how to do that. You grow into that reality that that, that is God's goal for a marriage. That's the reality of it. You see, like every living thing, that reality can be killed. Such is the power of our free will. And so the only relevant question when it comes to a marriage that's rocky is, is, is there any life to work with here? Is is, is there a reality here to work with? Uh, do the couples want to move at least in the direction where they'd have some kind of reflection of the love of the triune God, some kind of reflection of the joy of the triune God? It'll always be perfect and always be struggling and tough, but are they moving in that direction? Or are they dead? Are, do they, are, are they hopelessly gone? Has is, is this been killed? Because it can be killed to the point where there's this, the two parties have no interest, or even if one party has no interest in making it work, then it's... it's it's dead if that person is genuinely without hope of turning around. And if something's genuinely dead, however it got that way, whether it's through years of negligence or years of lying or cheating or, or, or just boredom or whatever, however it got that way, if it's dead, well, then you have to bury it. Hanging on to dead things, they start to decompose and you can get infected. And so the, I've met people who. 74 years old, 75 years old. They hate each other. They've hated each other for 25 years, but by golly, they're sticking it out because they're keeping covenant. Sticking in there in a miserable prison is, not, is that's not anything like what God intended for marriage. There's no reality there. It's great that you're staying in it, but stay in it to work on it, to go somewhere with it, not just to be miserable and get more entrenched. And That can become a disease. I mean, you're living with that kind of hatred, uh, it, it can disease you. It's, um, no, if it's truly dead, you've got to bury it. And, and that's, it's sad. that's sad, and you can't feel righteous about it, but it happens. And it's, see, if you're in that position, maybe you have had a barrier relationship recently, rela- a marriage. I, I would just, I'm sorry you had to go through that. There are a few things in life that, that can't be more miserable, any more miserable than that. So I'm sorry. I just encourage you to ask and then receive forgiveness for any role you played in the dissolving of that covenant. Uh, I pray you receive, seek after healing to be healed from whatever wounds came about as a result of that, 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 that uh, damaged and then finally broken covenant. And then, with God and with other people that you trust, spiritual friends, uh, uh, ask the question what is the loving way to move forward? Learn from the past and then move forward. But do it. what is the loving, what is the most optimal kingdom way to move forward? And ask them to help discern this with you. And that includes the question of whether you should ever be remarried. Now, as Emily said a couple weeks ago, or was it last week? I think it was last week, uh, that, that both Jesus and Paul acknowledge it. They say that staying single is preferable in this fallen world. If you can stay single, uh, you're going to be ahead of the game that way because you can be more singularly devoted to the kingdom. But they both add right away, uh, but not everyone can do that. Um, and so, so y- y- if it's possible to stay single, well, the New Testament would encourage you to do that. But that's the kind of thing that you need to discern with God. You need to discern it with friends, uh, spiritual friends that you've invited in to walk in your situation. And see, yeah, that does involve another break from God's ideal. Uh, it is just like thing after another involves a break from God's ideal. Remarriage involves a break from God's ideal, but see, whereas there's never any loving motive for lusting, there can be a loving motive for getting remarried. And, and, and sometimes that's the best option. God says, go ahead with it. And God blesses that. Don't think that God holds out a blessing or that it's going to be, you know, only tentatively blessed or get a second-class blessing or micro-blessing. No, no. no. When, when God accommodates, He really accommodates. And so you see God blessing even folks we, with, with polygamous marriages in the Old Testament, that wasn't ideal, but, but uh, this is where they're at. So God loves them where they're at and God's going to bless them where they're at to make the best of it. It involves a break from non, uh, means God's going to have to accommodate a non-ideal reality. But God's been doing that with you and me from the first time we ever had a lustful thought or the first time we ever had a hateful thought. So it's not even that exceptional. It's what God's been doing with all of us uh, throughout our life leading up to this point. Because see, accommodation, meeting people where they're at, Uh, and loving them so they can be the best of all they can be. That's that's just what love does. And that's called mercy. Mercy is love accommodating non-ideal realities of the beloved. God does it all the time to keep on influencing us. And uh, if it was not for God's mercy, folks, I'll end with this. If it was not for God's mercy, uh, all of us would be on a road to self-destruction, a road to Gehenna. We're on the road to glory land, to the new Jerusalem, to the coming kingdom, Because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, hallelujah. What is the loving thing to go forward, the only thing worth asking? Praise God.